Thanks, Ollie. Uh, nice to be with you this morning. Yes, the title is The God of Mrs. Brown. I was actually challenged the other week. I was immensely challenged by an older lady called Mrs. Brown. Not inter- I'm just going to call her Mrs. Brown, okay, for the purposes of this story. Uh, not directly, but indirectly, because I found out that that older lady needed a new iPad. She, her iPad wouldn't charge past 29%, so I, fair enough, you need a new iPad if it won't charge past 29%. So she had been saving up for a while for this, and then shortly after I found this out then, I was involved with counting the collection for the earthquake uh, in Turkey and Syria, and the biggest contribution of all was a check for 300 pounds from Mrs. Brown. So she had taken her savings and given them to the Lord. And she then told me, I once walked her and she told me, you know, those people need that money a lot more than I do, and the Lord can keep my iPad going. And the Lord was showing me a modern day equivalent of Luke chapter 21. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 21, we'll just read the first few verses, one to four. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This widow is a great example of someone who just gives everything she has to God. Literally all she had to live on. And she come, now she comes at the end of a block of stories. So we're going to go back into chapter 20 and uh, just read a bit more about the context of where this comes from. And it's another question about coins and money. So we'll go back to chapter 20, verse 19, where this section starts. So Luke chapter 20, verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, and they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So it starts back here in chapter 20 with a question that was a trap. So the scribes and the chief priests, now chief means the most powerful priests, so the most powerful religious authorities in the land, they were looking to get a hold of Jesus, to lay hands on him. And they were very concerned about how popular Jesus was becoming, and especially about his teaching all of the people in the temple, because he was starting to expose them, the religious leaders, as hypocrites. And they were afraid of the crowd, it says. They, were afraid, they feared the people. They were afraid the people would turn against them because Jesus was exposing them. 
So they waited for a good crowd to gather, and then they sent in men pretending to be, you know, sort of Jesus' biggest fans. And th- th- these, these men flattered Jesus and said, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth and teach rightly, and you don't, you know, hold to anybody but God alone. And then they asked the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So again, a question about coins and money. And this word lawful, by lawful, they aren't so much thinking about Caesar's laws. Of course it was lawful, like Caesar's government demanded that you give coins. They were thinking about God's law. Does God allow us to give tribute to Caesar, to give tax, to pay tax to Caesar? And you see, this, is, this was deliberately emotive language, especially amongst the Jews, right? If, if paying tax is controversial for us, <laughs> it was very controversial for the Jews, right? And many people believed that Caesar's laws and God's laws contradicted. And it was therefore wrong to give money to the Roman government. They had no choice, but they felt it was wrong. Because, you know, he was, the, the Roman government was an enemy of God's government. So that was like paying the enemy, supporting the enemy. So if he answered yes, pay your taxes, then the crowd would give him up. They, they, you know, these spies knew that the crowd would give him up as the Messiah. He would lose all popularity. What kind of a Messiah king for the Jews would just give in to all the demands of a Gentile king? But they were really expecting him to say no. And from their flattery, you can see that. Oh, you know, you don't really respect him. You teach the truth rightly now. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? So they're expecting him to say no. And what they expect then is to hand him over to the Romans for execution. So he'd say, don't pay. The spies would inform the Romans as a, that he was a political traitor and he would be executed. Another way, they didn't really mind whether he said yes or no. Yes, he would lose all popularity, all his teaching. No, they would have him executed. Either way, their problem was solved. Heads they win, tails he loses. Even if their you know, flattery had been sincere, though, they were vastly underestimating the wisdom of their opponent. And in this famous passage, Jesus says, show me a denarius, a coin, a Roman coin, which looked a bit like this. It had, of course, the image and inscription of Caesar on it, imprinted on the coin. And then Jesus uses that to give his memorable answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He says, look at the coin. Look, the coin comes from Caesar. It has Caesar's head on it. You're living under his economic, entire economic system. So yes, Give to Caesar what is due according to his economic system. But then Jesus brings the question to a far higher level and says, you know, you, you're, you're meant to be Jews who know the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis. What does the very first page in the Bible say? That humans are made in the image of God. Humans are stamped, not with the image of Caesar, with the image of God himself. And Caesar might, yeah, he might be owed a few coins according to the economic system, but God is meant to be owed our entire lives. And you see, to the, 
to these chief priests and the scribes that are trying to trap Jesus, he's a threat to the political status quo. They just, they're quite happy living under the Romans, and they don't want any messiahs stirring up any political, you know, turmoil or any riots or anything like that. So they, they, they had been given quite a bit of power by the Romans, and they were not interested in whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. They just want rid of him. They just want the, the, the status quo to continue. But Jesus is getting across two answers to them. Number one, I am not a threat to Caesar. I, I have not come to start a political re revolution. Number two, I have come for something far bigger. I have come to restore people to God. And he says, you look at those coins. They come from Caesar. They belong to Caesar anyway. So you can give back what you owe to Caesar. They're just coins. But look at yourself. You're a person. And you come from God and you belong to God. So give yourself back to God. Now, a lot of us pay our taxes, you know, as if the tax man is kind of stealing some of our hard-earned cash, which is sort of, silly because we forget that we could not earn any money if we didn't live in an economic system which runs by tax, right? Uh, okay. And a lot more of us treat God like a tax man. We pay him back honestly but reluctantly with the bare minimum that we can get away with forgetting that we would not even breathe or live without him. And what would it look like if we actually rendered to God the things that are God's? You know, to, get, to get up every morning and, and render our whole life, to lay our whole life before God every morning and say, my time, my energy, my breath, my life, my money, everything is yours, Lord, because it all comes from you anyway. And I am alive. I am breathing to do your will this day, God. Like, who does that? <laughs> who gets up with that attitude? But th that's what Jesus is saying. We, we owe God everything. Because everything we have is from him. Now, remember the widow who just gave the two mites? And remember Mrs. Brown? Now, that was some answer. And his opponents are kind of stunned at how he evaded their trap. And in fact, he uses it to teach God's truth. And then come along some other people with an even trickier question. So let's read now from verse 27 of chapter 20. It says, Then came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. 
for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So these are identified as Sadducees who come and ask him this question. Now that's a term for those who subscribed to a liberal theology back in those days, and they didn't take the Bible so literally. They did not accept that there would actually be a literal resurrection. As the corny dingle puts it, that's why they were sad, you see, because they had no hope of life after death, right? That's really what it means, not just resurrection, no life after death, no future. And many of the chief priests, right, these chief priests that are trying to trap Jesus are Sadducees, which is quite amazing, isn't it? Like, these really religious, the most religious people in the, in the land don't believe in life after death. They were so religious, but no eternal aspect. It was all about benefits here and now. To them, religion was just a business. It was all about power and prestige and politics, just like many religious leaders today. And they were intellectually arrogant. They were well-educated men of the world. They despised the common people. They thought anyone who held to a literal view of the Bible were just primitive and naive simpletons who read the Bible far too literally. And their question here was designed to show how impractical anyone who believed in an actual resurrection after death was. Because it was based on a a, a practice in the Bible called Leverite marriage. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses commanded that if a husband died before he had any sons, then his wife should be given to his brother and Uh, they should then have a son on behalf of the dead man, right? Sounds a bit weird to us. This was a long time ago. It was a very different culture, right? But in their hypothetical scenario, this happens seven times. The woman survives all seven brothers. If I was brother number six or seven, I would be asking for the post-mortem results, right, of, of those last five deaths. And, and finally, the woman herself, you know, dies, And and she's now married seven men in her lifetime, so they asked Jesus, well, whose wife is she going to be in the afterlife? It makes no sense. And they were just using this to prove that this whole idea of living after you're dead is, is impractical. It's nonsense. It's pie in the sky. How would it actually work in the realities of life? And in their view, the only real realities of life were death and taxes. And sensible people should focus on making the best of life now. And Jesus explains that they are entirely mistaken in their assumptions. The next life is not a continuation of this life. Whether you're widowed and remarried seven times or not married at all is irrelevant. Marriages are not carried over. And once again, Jesus brings it to a much higher level of our relationship with God. And he says, whether married or single, whether you have lots of children or none, in, this li- in that life, we will all be equal. Sons, sons of the resurrection, sons of God. And the term is sons and daughters. And we all need to hear this again. Some of us still imagine that that relationships kind of carry over, that we will, you know, somehow miss out forever because we aren't married or because we have no children. And, the, and Jesus explaining that the only key relationship that will matter then is being a son or daughter of the living God. 
And then to prove that resurrection is inevitable, Jesus quotes from Exodus. And that was wise because the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible. And he says, even Moses showed that resurrection is inevitable. In the passage about the bush, he means Exodus chapter 3, when God showed up to Moses in the burning bush, a very famous passage to all these Jews. He says, God calls himself the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's how God identified himself to Moses. And he says, Jesus says, if you think, think about that for a minute. If God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, that means that people must live on after death. Can you, can you see the connection? If you think about that, Jesus thinks we should, we should see the connection here. Because he... God is referring to Abraham and Isaac and Moses and, and Jacob in the present tense. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had all lived a long time before Moses. And God turns up to Moses and he introduces himself to Moses by these men in the present tense. He, say, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. Jesus is showing that God saw himself as still in an ongoing present tense relationship with these men who had long since died. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were dead, but were not gone. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. You see, identity is such a huge concept nowadays, isn't it, for young people? We need to help our young adults come to have their primary identity, not through sexual orientation or achievements or relationships, but as a son and daughter of the living God. But this is actually something even more remarkable. This is not us getting our identity with God. This is God identifying himself through us, through human beings. Here is the eternal God introducing himself as God, the God of Abraham. I, I don't know if you've ever been introduced. You, have you ever got, you, maybe you have a more well-known brother or sister and you go to a party and they're like, this is, this is Johnny's brother. Oh, great, right? Imagine the Almighty introduces himself like that to Moses. I'm Abraham's God. And Jesus is challenging these intellectual, intellectual Sadducees to think about what that implies. That means that these humans, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had become as eternal as God himself. If God is now the God of Abraham, not, to, not just when Abraham was alive, but forever, when Moses was alive, and forever, God is the God of Abraham, Right? If God is the God of Abraham forever, that means God has formed an eternal relationship with a man, and that man is now eternal as well. When Abraham died, God didn't go, oh, that's a shame. I, I really like that guy. You know, who will I be the God of now? You see, if God befriends someone, he never loses them. <laughs> God doesn't do that. He keeps them forever. 
And this is what this short life is for, Jesus is saying, developing a friendship with the eternal God. If I become a friend of God's, I can never cease to be because God would never allow it. And, and that was such an answer that all the questions stopped. Even the scribes who knew the Bible so well could not think of any other biblical questions to stump this guy. And then Christ decided, well, I'll play by that and I'll, I'll ask my question. And he asks his question now in verse 41. So Luke chapter 20, verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And, and Christ, the, the term Christ here means Messiah, God's chosen king. And these men were not they were not interested in trying to work out whether Jesus was the Messiah. They, these so-called Bible experts, they were the ones who, who should have been trying to figure out, was Jesus the Messiah based on the Scriptures? But they weren't interested. They were just trying to kill him. And Jesus is trying to get these men to think again about what the Scriptures say about the Messiah. Because the prophets, yeah, everybody knew that the prophets said that, that the Messiah would be David's son. David was the most famous king in Israel who had lived about a thousand years before Jesus. And Jesus was indeed David's descendant. He was David's son in the sense of descendant. But Jesus is saying, if that's all that Messiah is, one of David's children, then why did David call him Lord in Psalm 110? Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And he says, why did David call Messiah Lord if all he is is one of David's descendants? And Christ is trying to show these men that their concept of the Messiah as a political figure who was going to come and take on Caesar or the Romans or something was far too small. David himself had a far bigger concept of the Messiah. He was the most successful king who had the biggest kingdom that Israel ever had back in the glory days of Israel. But David understood that when Messiah came and when Messiah's kingdom come, it would be so much greater than David that David himself would just be a subject in that kingdom. <laughs> Messiah would be David's Lord. It's a bit, wee bit like the way the late Queen Elizabeth referred to the fact that she wanted Jesus to come back so she could lay her crown at Jesus' feet. That's, that's the same kind of idea of what David is saying there in Psalm 110. And these men thought that death was the ultimate weapon. They were seeking to lay hands on Jesus to kill him. They didn't really care to examine the prophecies to see whether, you know, if, if what he was saying was true. But, but Jesus is trying to show them that warning them that death cannot be the end for the Messiah. He is not just a descendant of David. He is David's Lord. And they might succeed in having him executed, but God would raise him from the dead and invite him to sit at his right hand until God made his enemies his footstool. David recognized that the Messiah would have an eternal, universal dominion. So for them to think they can kill the Messiah and get rid of him was nonsense. And despite this warning 
a direct warning to these men who should know the scriptures. They went ahead, they had, they succeeded in having Jesus killed, but of course, God raised him from the dead and invited him to sit at his right hand, just as David predicted a thousand years before this. And these men were desperate to kill Jesus, to hold on to whatever little power they had in this life, and Jesus was warning them that the Messiah... They had vastly underestimated who the Messiah was. And if they are not careful, they will end up on the wrong side of his kingdom forever. So these men who should have known their Bible hadn't really thought about it. They hadn't thought about Exodus. They hadn't thought about Psalm 110. And they needed to think again. Think about the implications of Exodus chapter 3 of Psalm 110. And this section ends with quite a contrast between the experts in the Bible and one poor old widow. So let's just read that contrast here as we come to the end of this section. From chapter 20, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes, the Bible experts, who like to walk around in long robes, they love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And these scribes were seen as the Bible experts. And all they did was use that status, their knowledge, their superior understanding, knowledge of the Scriptures. They just used it for power and prestige. So they got the best seats, the most the seats at the parties, the most honor. And even worse than that, they actually twisted Bible verses out of context to steal for their own financial gain. Whenever the poor people were uneducated, they didn't really understand the Bible like they should. They had no access to it like these scribes. Well, these scribes used the Bible passages to steal their inheritance, to force sincere, devout widows to give their inheritance to the temple, to the system, the religious system, to prove to them that God owned it all so that the scribes got a cut. And Jesus looks at all that corruption and says they will receive the greater condemnation. And he looks at all the show of them putting in the, all the money that they had, which they had stolen from other people, and then he looks over at this poor widow who gives all the money she has, two copper coins, hardly anything, for no earthly benefit, for no prestige, for no payback, for no one to notice but God himself. And the Messiah notices. And in the midst of all this corruption, he points out that this poor widow's incredible devotion to God, and perhaps she had her inheritance stolen by these scribes. But her hardships had somehow allowed her to show a level of devotion to God that was remarkable, that the Messiah himself pointed out for all eternity. 
And it's harder for us to do that, isn't it? Those of us that have a bit of stuff, have a few riches. How do we give all to God? You know, especially whenever we need new clothes and we need a new phone or we need a new iPad. It doesn't even cross our mind that our money is not our own to do what we want with. Yeah, we'll give our tax to the government and our tax to God. Now, we may not extort others like these scribes, but neither do we give all like this widow. As C.S. Lewis says, we are like very honest but very reluctant taxpayers. We give to God like we give to the taxman, an unpleasant but necessary duty. And these scribes were seeking honor from people because of their Bible knowledge, and Jesus exposed them as frauds and thieves. And he honors this lady. And the scribes, Jesus says, will not have eternal honor. They will have eternal condemnation. But this lady will be honored forever. God will not be ashamed of her for all eternity. God himself will identify himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Mrs. Brown. Now, there's a lot of scriptural debate going on in this section, isn't there? between Jesus and the Bible experts. You can see it the whole way through, over political issues, over hypothetical theological questions. But it all ends with this one woman who gives all she has to God. And maybe she understands the Bible better than any of us, right? I don't know how much of it she knew, but she understood it. Because more than the scribes, with their theology, she understood that the whole purpose of Scripture and of life is to develop a genuine friendship with the God of Abraham. And she had come quietly to the temple, not to be seen by anybody. She had come quietly on her own to give God everything. And that challenges my heart this morning. These scribes knew their Bible well, but they did not know God. They had no interest in a relationship with God. And that can be scarily true, even of us who stand up here to teach God's word. We can be doing it all for esteem, all for praise, all for money, with very little genuine desire to please God. It's the unseen part of our life that is the real test. It's whether I do anything just for God. Something that only he can possibly notice. You know, every single day, there are endless opportunities to worship God in, in work and in home and in church, in every area of life. To do something not for thanks, not for recognition from others, just for God. <laughs> just to live that life as, as a friend of God. To serve somebody, to, to clean up something, to do anything. Just so nobody will notice, nobody will thank you, but God will notice. The scriptures actually says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. Uh, you know, it's, this is what life is for, developing a genuine day-to-day -day friendship with the God of eternity, like this lady. And that transforms every mundane task into an act of eternal worship. You know, we can give our all in every task, knowing we won't be thanked, we won't be rewarded or recognized by anyone but God. And he will notice every little thing that I do. He noticed that widow in the temple. He noticed Mrs. Brown's check in the collection. 
And that's why he came, to get people to render to God the things that are God's, to give their whole selves every day back to the one who made them, so that whenever this short life ends, God will be their God forever. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled whenever we come to this story of this this poor widow, such a simple act. All she had was two copper coins, and yet she just sneaked quietly into the temple and dropped them into the collection box for no one to notice, but someone noticed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, 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 and she knew that God would notice. She knew, she knew she was doing it for you, Lord, and for you alone, just given everything she had. Even though it was very little, it was all she had. And we sit here this morning, Lord, with, with very little. There's not much to us. What are we? We have a little breath in our lungs. We have a little strength. We have a little time, a little energy, a little money. You've loaned us a a few things. And Lord, how much do we keep for ourselves? And how much do we give back to you? Lord, help this story this morning just to remind us that all we have comes from you. And help us even tomorrow to remember to get up and and think of you first thing, even even after this, this, this service is over, Lord, to think, what, what can we do, any little thing, for you to notice and no one else? Lord, to live our life as, in such a way that, that, that it's with you every single day in every little way. Lord, that is what life is for. And so often we forget it, just in the busyness. So often we, we think we, everything we have belongs to us. Help us to remember that there is a God behind us who gave us everything and help us to give our all back to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.